This morning I'm going to break from our series in the Gospel of Luke and bring a sermon on a difficult subject. But it's a subject that we have to think about given the times in which we are living. In my personal devotions this past week I read Genesis chapter 34. And uh, believe it or not, Genesis chapter 34 is in the Bible. Uh, God intended it to be there. In fact, it contains God's very words. Words he communicated to us. Uh, He wanted us to read them, to think about them and to learn from them. As some of you probably know, the story in Genesis chapter 34 is shocking. And I couldn't help but notice the connection to what we've grown accustomed to seeing in the media over the last couple of years. I can give you an example from just a few days ago. In Genesis chapter 34, a young woman is assaulted. And on the front page of the Daily Telegraph on Wednesday, there was a story about a well-known footballer who had appeared in court charged with assaulting a young woman. If if found guilty, he could spend up to 20 years in prison. The details of the incident, according to the police, were tendered to the court and included in the newspaper story, and they were awful. Now, of course, the man in question is entitled to the presumption of innocence. I don't know if he broke the law, but even if he is not convicted of a crime, his behaviour was totally immoral and shameful, and he had to appear in court while his pregnant partner was at home. I'm sure you've noticed that we are living in a season where the spotlight is being shone upon this kind of behaviour by men like never before. The powerful men are going down all over the place as their mistreatment of women is exposed. Actors, musicians, politicians, journalists, media personalities and even pastors. I grew up watching Burke's Backyard... It was on Friday nights before the football and it turns out that Mr Burke was notorious for mistreating women and his employer knew all about it. And I quote, I've been trying to think of Harvey Weinstein type people in Australia and the only one I can ever come up with is Burke. He was a horrible, horrible man. That's from David Leckie, the former chief executive of Channel 9. In November last year, the leader of the opposition in New South Wales, Mr Foley, uh, resigned because of inappropriate behaviour towards a female journalist at a Christmas party. And if that journalist had been our daughter, sister, wife, mother or friend, we'd have been justifiably upset and wanted something to be done. Now I think there are legitimate concerns about natural justice and about the power that mere allegations of misconduct seem to have these days. Uh, We live in the age of the self-righteous social media mob. Uh, Allegations are amplified. There are demands for immediate action to be taken. The pressure is applied to the organisation, company or individual in question. And that can lead to unjust outcomes, and maybe it has in some cases. But whatever our concern about the excesses of the Me Too movement might be, 
There is no arguing that it has exposed men who really have harassed and abused and assaulted women, and often women over whom they had some degree of power. As Christians, I believe there are six appropriate responses to this phenomenon that continues to sweep through our culture. Number one, sympathy for the victims. That's a Christian response. We weep with them that weep. Number two, gratitude when there is justice for victims. That's a good thing. Again, if it was us or someone we love who was mistreated in this way, harassed, abused, assaulted, we'd want justice to be done. And when it is, praise the Lord. Our Lord loves righteousness. Response number three. Gratitude that men who've mistreated women are no longer in positions to do so. Uh, That makes the environment safer. Uh, Another woman in that workplace is not going to be preyed upon by that man. Response number four. uh, Gratitude that there is more awareness of this issue and of what's appropriate and what's not. Uh, Number five. Compassion for the men who've done these things. Jesus extends a hand of love and grace to men who've committed these sins. Uh, Do we think we're entitled not to? Uh, Do we think we're more righteous than Jesus? And then response number six. We look at ourselves and what we're doing. It's all well and good to be upset by what's going on out there in the world. It's all well and good to have our opinions... What about in here, in our families, in our relationships? How are we behaving? What are we modelling for our children? What are we teaching them? As much as it is in our power, we don't want to raise boys who mistreat women in any way, not with their words and certainly not with their bodies. This is what I want to do this morning. Respond in this way by turning the spotlight onto our lives. And I want to do so by going to the scriptures and to this story in the book of Genesis. So please, if you haven't already, open your Bible to Genesis chapter 34. We'll read the text and then we'll pray and ask for God's help. Genesis chapter 34, beginning at verse 1. And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. And he sold clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the damsel and spake kindly unto the damsel. And Shechem spake unto his father Hamor, saying, Get me this damsel to wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his cattle in the field, and Jacob held his peace until they were come. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out unto Jacob to commune with him. And the sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very wroth, because he had wrought folly in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. And Hamor communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter. I pray you, give her him to wife, 
And make ye marriages with us, and give your daughters unto us, and take our daughters unto you, and ye shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade ye therein, and get ye possessions therein. And Shechem said unto her father, and unto her brethren, Let me find grace in your eyes, and what ye shall say unto me, I will give. Ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I will give according as ye shall say unto me, but give me the damsel to wife. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father deceitfully, and said, Because he hath defiled Dinah their sister. And they said unto them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that were a reproach unto us. But in this will we consent unto you, if ye will be as we be, that every male of you be circumcised. Then will we give our daughters unto you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not hearken unto us to be circumcised, then will we take our daughter, and we will be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. And the young man deferred not to do the thing, because he had delight in Jacob's daughter, and he was more honourable than all the house of his father. And Hamor and Shechem his son came unto the gate of their city, and communed with the men of their city, saying, These men are peaceable with us. Therefore let them dwell in the land and trade therein, for the land, behold, it is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us for our wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only herein will the men consent unto us for to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised, shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? Only let us consent unto them, and they will dwell with us. And unto Hamor and unto Shechem his son hearkened all that went out of the gate of his city. And every male was circumcised all that went out of the gate of his city. And it came to pass on the third day when they were sore, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. And they slew Hamor and Shechem his son at the edge of the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their sheep and their oxen and their asses and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. And all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives took they captive and spoiled even all that was in the house. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me to make me stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And I, being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. And they said, Should he deal with our sister as with an harlot? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please help us now as we consider your word. Lord, it's difficult, but Lord, it's necessary. Again, we ask that your spirit would give us understanding. Pray that he would take the truths of scripture and write them upon our hearts. And we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Before we get into the body of our message this morning, I want to say two things by way of introduction. The first concerns Dinah's age. In Genesis chapter 37, the story of Joseph begins... And we're told that when his brothers sold him to the Ishmaelites, he was 17 years old. Dinah, who was Jacob's daughter by Leah, was at least one year older than Joseph. We don't know how much time elapsed between the events recorded in chapter 34 and the beginning of Joseph's story in chapter 37. 
But it's safe to say that Dinah could not have been more than 18 years old when she had this awful experience. It's quite likely she was 15 or 16 years old, or maybe even younger. Some scholars suggest she may have been as young as 12. The second thing I want to say by way of introduction is to make it clear that what happened to Dinah was assault. This was not a consensual encounter. Uh, The Hebrew word translated defiled in verse 2 is often translated afflicted in the Old Testament. Uh, Sometimes it's translated humble. In 2 Samuel chapter 12 it's translated forced. And that's in the context of what Amnon did to his half-sister Tamar. Whether Dinah was unwise in venturing from her father's house to see the daughters of the land is a valid question, but she did not seek this encounter. She did not seduce Shechem. The text makes it clear that he saw her, he took her, he lay with her, and in doing so, he humiliated her. The Bible makes it clear what this was. It was the kind of act that today would put a man in prison for a very long time. Now, the way I'm going to organise our study this morning is by having us think about each of the main characters. Uh, We'll start with Shechem, then we'll talk about his father, Hamor, then we'll finish with Dinah. We'll have to save Simeon and Levi and their brutal act of vengeance for another day. So, first of all, let's consider Shechem. Shechem was a Hivite, that is, he belonged to one of the Canaanite tribes that inhabited the land that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants. The Hivites are mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 7 as being one of the seven nations that the Lord was going to drive out of the land. And he was going to do so because of their wickedness. If you want to know just how wicked those nations were, read Leviticus chapter 20. Shechem was also the son of a prince. His father, Hamor, was the prince or the chief of the country in which Jacob was sojourning. Uh, Whether this means he was the prince of all the Hivites or of just a particular clan, I don't know. But he was nevertheless a wealthy and powerful man. And when you were the son of a prince in those ancient Near Eastern societies... That usually meant that you were also a person of wealth and power. It's rather chilling the way that Shechem's behaviour is described. There is a brutality implicit in the sparseness and directness of the way the story is narrated. The account before us speaks of a young man who had a sense of entitlement... And it speaks of a young man who had no qualms about exercising power over others. He saw this beautiful young woman, perhaps talking with some women from his own clan. Maybe it was in a market setting or at some kind of social gathering. He he saw her and his passions were inflamed and because he could, he took her. Uh, Did he order some of his servants to fetch her? Did he himself go and convince her to come into his dwelling? Did he use words? Did he use his hands to drag her away? We don't know. He took her and then he did what he wanted to do with her and I'll I'll say no more about that. And then he fell in love with her. 
He spoke kindly to her. He wanted to marry her. It's really rather perverse. And so he went to his father and demanded that he arrange a marriage. Get me this damsel to wife. We can't say for sure whether Shechem had any regrets about what he did to Dinah. When it says in verse 3 that he spoke kindly unto her, maybe there were some words of apology or sympathy. Maybe there was a tinge of regret, but there certainly wasn't repentance. There was no admission of wrongdoing when he met with Dinah's father Jacob and her brothers. There was no humility. All he wanted was what he wanted. Verse 11. And Shechem said unto her father. Think about that for a minute. He's talking to the father of the girl he's just assaulted. He said unto her father and unto her brethren, Let me find grace in your eyes, and what ye shall say unto me, I will give. Ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I will give according as ye shall say unto me, but give me the damsel to wife. Shechem wasn't talking about compensating Jacob for the hurt and shame he'd caused. This wasn't about making things right. This wasn't about justice. This was a business deal, a transaction. I'll pay you whatever you want. Just give me your daughter. There are three aspects of Shechem's behaviour that I want us to ponder for a moment and make the connection to our lives. The first is Shechem's unbridled lust. This was what sat below the surface of his actions. What was going on in his heart and in his mind culminated in what he did to Dinah. He saw her, the text says. And his desires were stirred. And desires led to thoughts and thoughts led to possibilities and possibilities led to plans and plans led to actions. That which cometh out of a man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil lie, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. Mark chapter 7 verses 20 through 23. Where did it start for Shechem? It started in his heart. His mistreatment of Dinah was the outflow of what was going on inside, in in his mind. Why do men mistreat women today? Uh, Where does the harassment and the abuse come from? It comes from their hearts. That's what Jesus told us. It's the outflow of unchecked desire, of uh, desires that are inflamed. It's the result of an uncontrolled, impure thought life. And uh, here I, I really have to mention the poison of pornography. Is it a surprise that we hear an awful lot about the mistreatment of women at a time when pornography has never been more accessible? Could there be a connection? Is it just a coincidence that a culture soaking in porn finds itself having to deal with this particular problem? Could it be that porn is shaping the attitudes and perceptions of a whole generation of young men towards women? If you have an internet connection and a smartphone, you have a portable, exhaustive 
library of pornography at your fingertips 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Three or four taps on your phone and you can be watching any immoral activity that you desire to see. That's the reality. And if we fill our minds with pornographic material, if we inflame our passions, if our thought life is uncontrolled and impure, it will affect the way we think about intimacy and the way we think about other human beings. And eventually it will affect the way we treat them. There are, there are a host of biblical reasons as to why we must stay away from pornography, why we must strive for purity in our thought life, and, and this is just one of them, but it's an important one. What's going on inside of us will eventually manifest itself in our attitudes and in our behaviours. We will hurt others and we will disgrace ourselves. If, if porn is a problem for you... And you have to deal with it. You must repent. And if that means getting help, then do it. Do it today. Talk to someone and do it for Jesus' sake and for the sake of your family, for the sake of your relationships, for the sake of your own personal testimony. This is yet another reason why we have to protect and educate our children. We don't want their perceptions to be warped. We don't want their hearts to be defiled. We don't want them to fall victim to their own unchecked desires. There was Shechem's unbridled lust. And then secondly, notice Shechem's sense of entitlement. He he saw the girl. He wanted the girl and so he just took her. And then he felt it was perfectly okay to take her permanently as his wife and have his father make all the arrangements. Get me this damsel to wife. Reading between the lines, it seems as though Shechem felt that he had the right to behave this way and make these demands. He was a man. She was a woman. He was the prince's son. She was the daughter of a foreigner. He could offer any sum to have her as his wife. Who was her father to turn down such an offer? This is often the case when it comes to powerful men who mistreat women. Because of their position or their wealth or their success, they develop a sense of entitlement. They believe they can make requests. They can ask for favours. They can have people serve their pleasures. The normal rules don't apply to them. And it's not just the rich and powerful. Any man can develop this sense of entitlement, that they are entitled to satisfy their desires, that they have a right to do so and women ought to oblige. No such entitlement exists. No man or woman is entitled to use or abuse another person for any reason. Human beings are made in the image of God and are inherently worthy of dignity and respect. And as Christians, we are to lead the way when it comes to treating people with dignity and respect. Honour all men, the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. There should never even be the slightest whisper that we've treated a person inappropriately. And if we do struggle with unfulfilled desires... We don't allow the world, the flesh and the devil to get inside our heads and fill us with pride and a sense of entitlement. No, we bring those desires to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We ask for his grace to deal with them and to live faithfully. We surrender and we submit. There was Shechem's unbridled lust. There was his sense of entitlement. And then thirdly, notice his objectification of Dinah. The text says that he loved Dinah, but that was after assaulting her. After committing what might be described as the supreme act of objectification. And yes, he did want to marry her, and granted in that culture there was a dowry, a bride price, but nevertheless, what was Dinah to him? We don't see much mutuality here. It seems to me that Shechem wanted Dinah for all that she could do for him. Get me this damsel to wife. I will give according as ye shall say unto me, but give me the damsel to wife. She was treated and traded like a piece of property. And not as a person made in the image of God. And this relates back to the two previous points. Unbridled lust and a sense of entitlement lead to this kind of attitude, to viewing people this way as objects. As objects to be used, not as human beings to be respected. And this is what culminates in harassment and assault. By God's grace, we must war against this in our own hearts and minds. We must see people for what they really are, not just as bodies, not just as instruments to satisfy our desires, but as persons, as human beings who think and feel and dream and hurt just like we do. When we're tempted to look at something we know we shouldn't, something immoral, we we need to remember that woman, she's a person. That man, he's a person. Not just a body, but a human being. How can I watch and in so doing participate in their degradation? How dare I make an object out of someone made in God's image? Someone who God loves and sent his son to rescue and redeem. So that's what we learn about Shechem in this story. Next I want us to think about his father, Hamor. And don't be alarmed, I've only got a couple of things to say about him. But before I do, I want to preface my comments by acknowledging that he was a pagan. He belonged to one of the nations in Canaan that God would eventually destroy for their wickedness, and so we really shouldn't expect him to have behaved any differently. (laughs) Nevertheless, I think we can still draw some lessons from what he did. The first thing I want you to notice is that he didn't reprimand his son for his behaviour. Maybe he didn't know what Shechem had done, but I think that's unlikely. And furthermore, he indulged his son's request to arrange a marriage with Dinah. Again, I don't think we should expect a pagan man to have done otherwise, but even so, in God's economy, this represented an epic failure as a parent. As one old English divine put it, a fond father seeks to satisfy the lust of a loose son whom he should have severely punished. We should allow Hamor's failure as a parent to stand as a reminder of our obligation as parents when it comes to this area of life. We need to teach our sons and our daughters what is right, what is appropriate, what is respectful and what is not 
and this is an especially important and urgent task given the nature of our culture. I was confronted recently by a situation where a group of 11 and 12 year old boys were hassling a girl of the same age who was with them and it was done jokingly and yet their behaviour could only be described as sexual harassment. If they had behaved that way as adults in a workplace, they'd all have been sacked and probably referred to the police, and rightly so. I'm not exaggerating this morning. This is real and relevant and serious. Boys need to learn that certain words, certain behaviours towards girls are completely out of order, and girls need to learn the same thing with regards to boys, and both boys and girls need to know that they don't have to put up with inappropriate behaviour. They have to know that it's not okay, and it's not the school teacher's job to teach them that, it's our job to teach it, and to model it, and to deal with our children when they behave inappropriately. We need to be very clear and very direct. They've got to get the message and they've got to know why right is right and why wrong is wrong. We observe Hamor's failure as a parent in this story. We also see his compromise. How did Hamor suggest that he, Jacob and their respective families deal with this situation? Verse 8. And Hamor communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter. I pray you give her him to wife, and make ye marriages with us, and give your daughters unto us, and take our daughters unto you, and ye shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade ye therein, and get you possessions therein. Now what's missing here? Any concern for Dinah? What about justice for the young woman his son had just assaulted no let's let's not worry about that let's just all get together and you give your daughter to my son and I'll give my daughters to to your sons and we'll become one family and we'll make money together let's forget about morality let's forget about the hurt and the damage done let's make a deal let's move on to bigger and better things what do you say Jacob compromise and inducement that was Hamor's way of dealing with this He tried to get Jacob to join him in the moral outhouse. Join us, live like us, it'll be great. We live in the age of Hamor, don't we? He's all around us. In the media, on the movie screen, in the education system, in the academy. Uh, Make ye marriages with us and give your daughters unto us and take our daughters unto you and ye shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Embrace the sexual ethics of Canaan and all will be well. No, it won't. The pressure to compromise on these issues is immense. We're increasingly isolated and frowned upon because we believe and follow what the Bible says. We're we're the bigots. We're the haters. And let's be honest, sometimes the world's way seems easier, liberating, fulfilling. But it's really not. The way of transgressors is hard, the Bible says. That's a great verse to memorise. The way of transgressors is hard. It's hard. Do we want sons that behave like Shechem? Do we want daughters that suffer like Dinah? No, we don't. 
way of safety. The way to know real joy is to hold firm to what God says and to instill it in our children. So we've thought about Shechem, we've thought about his father Hamor. Now let's turn our attention to Dinah. And unfortunately there's really not much to say. She was the silent victim of all of this. Her voice is not heard at all in this story. And she's never mentioned again. We'd like to hope that she she went on to marry and have a family and have a fulfilling life, but maybe she didn't. Maybe she lived all her life with the stigma of what Shechem did to her. Again, we we just don't know. But here's why I think Dinah is very important. Her name is mentioned. Her name is mentioned. It's been forever inscribed in Holy Scripture and her story is told and it was God who put her name and her story in the Bible and therefore in our hands today. That's significant, don't you think? I mean, why would you put a woman's story like this in the Bible? God obviously wanted us to know about her and think about her like we have today. And maybe there's a diner here this morning. Statistics would suggest there probably is. According to the ABS, 17% of women and 4% of men have experienced sexual assault since the age of 15. And those percentages are slightly higher if you include people's childhood years. Maybe it wasn't assault, but it was harassment by a colleague or a boss or in some other setting, and it shattered you. If anything... Dinah's story indicates that God is not indifferent to your suffering. And in truth, he sent his only son to repair in you what some man somewhere broke. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Jesus heals the brokenhearted. Jesus gives liberty to those bruised by sin, their own sin and sins of others. He came to give life. He came to provide forgiveness, to give peace. And he did so by walking in our shoes, by suffering as we suffer, by keeping God's law and then by bearing all of our sins in his body on the cross, paying the penalty for them. Then he rose again from the dead and 40 days later ascended into heaven. When he got there, he sent down his own Holy Spirit to come and live within all those who repent of their sins. Put their trust in him. His Holy Spirit pours God's love into our hearts. We experience God's peace as we draw near to him. And as we grow in grace, we find the strength to forgive those who've sinned against us. In fact, it's impossible to forgive and move on apart from the grace of God. By his gracious work in us, we can overcome the weight of bad experiences. We might never forget them. But we can certainly know real security and real joy in our lives. The gospel can define who we are and and where we're going, not some painful experience in our past. 
Now, if you identify with Dinah this morning, you have my sympathy, and I mean that. I'm sorry for whatever it was you were subjected to. But my sympathy is not much, and it can't do much. What you need is the love and care and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love how Peter describes Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses, verse 25. I'll read from verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live under righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. If you're a Christian, that's who Jesus is to you. The shepherd, the bishop of your soul, the one who cares for your soul. And he can help you deal with the very hardest of human experiences. And believe it or not, this whole story in Genesis chapter 34 points us to Jesus. And it does so in the words of one author, by his absence. Christ is present by his absence. This is a story of people living without Jesus, living apart from God. This is people operating according to their own wisdom, people left to their own devices, and look how badly they treated each other. There was no respect, there was no justice, there was no morality, there was only suffering and death. These people needed God in their lives. They needed divine love, divine wisdom, divine law. They needed saving from themselves and from their sins. And so does this world and so do we. The Me Too movement has exposed human depravity and human weakness. It's exposed the ugly side of sin and the damage it does. But more activism, more awareness, more education, more laws, they can't really fix the problem. There is only one solution for perpetrators and for victims. There is only one thing that can keep us from falling. And that is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. May that grace be with us all. And may it flow through us to those who desperately need it. Amen.